to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be on the third church we're covering now, which is the church of Pergamum. Now, to give you some background about Pergamum, I wanted to pull out this commentary, very helpful, giving some archaeological and historical facts about Pergamum. It's very interesting. We'll draw some of that out here. If you still have that chart with you I gave you guys a few weeks back, you might, you know, maybe take a little peek at it as you're looking at the book, and you'll notice that every, every line is full on Pergamum. So um, there's nothing missing. They, out of all the things that are addressed in all the churches, they get everything. They get a commendation. They get a correction. They get called to repent. Uh, everything. So it's uh, very interesting uh, to see that with this church in particular. So let's dive into some background real quick, and then I'll give you the main idea, and we'll dive into the text. So this church of Pergamum, uh, it's the modern town of Bergama. You can kind of see where maybe a little bit it's uh, connected, uh, Pergamum, Bergama. Um, but um, really, there's a lot of stuff there regarding history, archaeology, and a lot of helpful stuff for interpretation. There's a citadel in Pergamum that rises more than 1,000 feet above the plain of the river, uh, Caicos, and is recessed from the Aegean coast by approximately 10 miles. The winding road by which the citadel is gained not only provides a delightful view of the valleys below, but also allows the observation of the construction of a major dam in the area, creating a large lake nearby and enhancing the beauty of what was already a beautiful location. So there's a couple things I want to point out. Number one is this place was seen as a military garrison. That's going to be really important as well uh, for our, our studies tonight. It was a citadel, and um, it, it was a place that the temple of Esculapus, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher that. I, always, I did it last time with the college students. I'm going to do it with you guys. Asculapius, I think that's right. It, it's, it's located, uh, this famous hospital and temple that was there. And um, it's close to a large modern military compound as well. So um, now the pro most prominent feature of the citadel was the gleaming temple structure and the altar. Now listen here, dedicated to Zeus Soter. Soter is a Greek word meaning savior. It's actually where we get the word for our, if you're into systematic theology, uh, maybe, maybe only a couple of you are, but you should be if you're not. Uh, the study of soteriology is the study of the doctrine of salvation. Okay, so Zeus Soter is Zeus the Savior. This is where his altar was, where people worshipped him, Zeus Soter. Now, um, there's another guy named Attalus I who ruled from 241 to 197 BC before Christ. And he also referred to himself as Attalus Soter. Apparently, uh, a title that he took after defending the city against the marauding Gauls. Uh, and this temple and the altar to Zeus were unquestionably the most spectacular features to greet the eye of the visitor coming through the valleys from any of three directions. To some, the altar, the great altar, listen to this, it appeared to be something of a throne. In 88 BC, Mithridates VI came into possession of the realm and was greeted as both Theos, God, and Soter, Savior. He was greeted that way. And this title was nothing new since Eumenes II, who ruled from 197 to 159 BC, had also desired to be referenced as both God and Savior. All of this description is sufficient to establish the prevalence, listen, of the worship of rulers in the environment of Pergamum. But one last thing I want to point out, which will have a lot of relevance to the modern era. Who here wants to go to medical school or has been or is in medical school? Right? So we got a few of y'all, right? So... You walk in anywhere 
anywhere in a medical institution, you're going to see something about Ascaliapus. You want to know why? Because that rod with a snake around it, you guys seen that in the medical profession, in that, in that blue star, the skinny rod? That's, that's a reference to this god, to this hospital, to Pergamum. Pretty interesting, huh? So that's carried on for even over 2,000 years later. So this uh, symbolic serpent uh, was in the worship of Ascaliapius, and it has passed through time to today. It can be found in that medical symbol. But this cult, Ascaliapius Soter, so he's the savior, not only dealt with physical healing, but also developed a doctrine of personal salvation, which was almost certainly known by the residents and viewed as a contrast to the salvation in Christ. So Galen, the famous physician there, had perfected his medical expertise in the care of wounded and dying gladiators. So worship happened at this hospital and temple to Escaliapius. So um, it's just very interesting, some of the things that are here, and that's also going to tie to our text tonight. So when, let's go to the main idea, and then we'll go ahead and dive into the text, okay? So let's look at the main idea. The main idea of the passage is this. Jesus warns that the church cannot hold fast to him and compromise at the same time by giving into worldliness. That's the main idea tonight. The main idea of this passage for the audience of the church of Pergamum, that Jesus warns that the church cannot hold fast to him and compromise at the same time by giving into worldliness. So for my first point tonight, it's just going to look at point number one is verse 12. And this is how I might summarize that point. His word is authoritative. Point number one, his word is authoritative. So let's look at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This phrase might recall to mind the, the sword that you see elsewhere in Scripture, the sword of the Spirit. Maybe the sword of Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and is discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's the power of the Word of God. And we might also remember, going back to Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That two-edged sword had a purpose, right? You might remember, the one-edged sword was used for slicing and dicing, Right? But the two-edged sword was meant to pierce. It was meant to go deep. Both those edges cutting as they go in and cutting as they go out. It was meant to kill. It was a, it was, in, in this sense, as Jesus is speaking, his mouth, his words are a sharp two-edged sword. His words pierce. And you might remember when I pointed out, like a nerd, the Greek in this passage, like eight times these two words, tade lege, are used in the Greek here. The words of. Seven of those are in the book of Revelation with these seven churches. The, eight, the other one is just in the book of Acts at random. So when he says the words, it's once again, it's an authoritative, strong, assertive message. So the words of who? The words of him, of Jesus. The words of him who what? Who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, maybe the weight of this isn't with you a little bit because it's been so long. So let's, let's read. Who, who is this him who has the words of the sharp two-edged sword? This isn't the soft lamb-like Jesus in the sense that you see in the Gospels who seems really kind and tender. There's a kind and tender side to Jesus, of course, but this is the manifestation of Jesus we see in Revelation that is one of judgment, of one of judgment, but also of peace. Look, verse 12 of chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, 
And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were, like, were, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, did I just stand there? No. What did he do? I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is a message from Jesus. And it's, it's from Jesus the judge. It's from Jesus the ruler. From the, Jesus the king. Jesus, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And as he's writing these authoritative words, and these words, particularly for this church, he's saying it's like a sharp two-edged sword that's meant to pierce. Now, as we think about that, and as we look onto this next section, verse 13 to 16, this is my second point in the text. This is really covering the state of the church. Point number two Verses 13 to 16, the state of the church. And there's three subpoints in here. I'll mention them as I go. Verse 13 to 16, the state of the church. Verse 13, here's subpoint A. Subpoint A, he knows the people. Subpoint A, he knows the people. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So we get right in the beginning a commendation. Jesus knows their faith. He knows it fully. He is omniscient. What does that mean? He is what? All what? He's all-knowing. God knows where they dwell. He knows very well where they dwell. He knows of the darkness of Pergamum, this temple worship that takes place to Asclepius and, and the Zeus Soter and all these people who are worshipped there, these false gods. And not only this, he says, I know where you dwell. This is where Satan's throne is. Maybe you've traveled and you've done missions somewhere around the world and you've gone to a place and you felt, wow, this place feels really dark. I don't know how to describe it. It just feels really dark. I remember one time I was in Israel, and I got to go into a Muslim mosque. And just something about it did not feel right. It just felt really dark being in there, knowing that false gods are worshipped in this place. I know another time uh, I was in the home of a, a Hindu person sharing the gospel with them. And I remember walking in and seeing she had the dot on her forehead, and then above their door was the picture of their favorite god. And they, but before I went down, sit, sat to eat with them, they wanted to uh, pray to their God. So, I, I mean, I'll let them do that. It's their home. But I remember they all sat on the floor and made me sit at the table. And I was really confused. I was like, why are you guys doing this? They're like, well, guest is God. And I said, I'm not God. <laughs> and, and to them, they said, well, you could be. So we just want to be safe and sit on the floor. And you said, I was like, no, I'll sit on the floor. So I sat on the floor just to kind of dispel that. And 
It was really weird, but it was really dark. It was really dark. Why? Because those people literally thought I could be a god. It was weird. There's a lot of darkness. And a lot of people really believe a lot of very sad things, a lot of really dark things. I remember going to uh, Sydney, uh, Canada, in uh, British Columbia, Vancouver, Victoria Island, or Vancouver Island, north of Victoria. And in that place, everyone seemed to have it so good. It was a retirement community, beautiful weather, wonderful place, if you've ever been. But God was just completely absent to those people. They had everything they could ever want in the world sense, yet they were completely empty. It seemed like a very dark place. You know, it seemed like a really dark place to me. My public school growing up, seeing fights, knowing people were living in a lot of sin, seeing the, the cliques and seeing all these things, and I thought, you know what? God seems to be really absent around, with all these people. It seems like a really dark place. And in a lot of ways, all these different kinds of places I mentioned, anywhere where God is not worshipped, it's, in some sense we would say it's a dark place. It's a dark place because the light of the gospel is not shining bright there. So as we think about the state of this church, and Jesus says, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. Well, what could this mean? What could Satan's throne mean? Well, there's five different opinions about what that means. So number one, it could be an allusion to Pergamum as the center of pagan religion in general. Could be that. Um, Number two, the Acropolis itself, where where this temple was, which looked like a great throne when viewed by a traveler approaching from Smyrna. It could be a reference to a throne-like altar of Zeus Soter. It could be a reference to the Asclepian cult, particularly because of its identification of Asclepius as a savior. And then lastly, the number five, it could be the city's reputation as a center for emperor worship. Remember the emperors, Attilus and Mithrades. Um, these guys wanted to be worshipped. So each of those actually, I think, are very plausible reasons for why he might say, Uh, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I think all those, to some degree, might even build up to that sense. I don't really fall on one in particular. I think it could be a bit of all of those. Uh, But regardless, like I said, with all five of those reasons, almost like I was referencing to all those different places, if God doesn't reign there, we'd say in some sense, Satan or his demons, one of them does. Scripture even says that even behind false religions and false idols is a demon. And so it wouldn't be surprising just to say, look, it's, it's just a particular reference, and it might be one that Jesus is using because he'd be familiar with them regarding the temple and the altar looking like a throne. So I know where you dwell. I know where. It's where Satan's throne is. It's where Satan's throne is. Now, um, looking, at, looking at this section in verse 13, he says, yet you hold fast my name. You hold, even though this is where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And what else? You did not deny my faith. So something happened. What happened to cause them to go to that moment where they did not deny the faith? Well, something happened to a man named Antipas. Now, we don't know anything. No one knows anything about this guy named Antipas except for Jesus when he spoke of it right here in Revelation 2. There's no church history stuff about him. But in the days of Antipas, he says, my faithful witness. So he's someone who was willing to die for the faith. And this is what it says of him. He was killed among you where Satan dwells. So it goes back to Satan. The beginning of that verse talks about Satan. The very end talks about Satan. Now, as that regards this, the church is called to hold fast here. They're called to hold fast, and they're commended for having not denied the faith. 
even though they went through such a difficult time. So what is the significance of holding fast to Christ's name? As you held fast to, notice it says, my name. What is in a name? When we think about the name of Jesus, does anyone know what the name of Jesus means? What does it mean? Everyone knows what your name means, maybe, right? You could tell me, hey, my name means this. Well, Travis means at the crossroads, right? So, hey, it's a French thing. It's kind of weird. A guy stood at the crossroads and said, go this way or that way. That's where my name comes from. Woo. Okay. But, hey, what does your name mean, right? I mean, I'm actually not asking that. What does Jesus' name mean? What does Jesus' name mean? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does his name mean? What's that? Yeah, pretty much. God will deliver. So specifically, we see in Matthew's gospel, you shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So Jesus' name is rooted in the Old Testament name. Which one? Joshua. Good job, guys. Good job. Joshua, which means the Lord is our salvation, right? And so Jesus, he says, you held fast to my name. You held fast to the Lord. You held fast to the one who is the Savior. Not Zeus Soter, Ascoliapus Soter. You didn't hold on to them. That's where Satan's throne is. You held on to the name of Jesus, the Savior. You did not deny the faith. So it's even right here where Satan dwells, where this took place. Now, we go on to verse 14 and 15, and now we enter our time of rebuke, our time of rebuke. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Oh, it's, it's, you know, with the church of Ephesus, it was just one thing. You know, this one thing I have against you. You've left your first love. Well, oops, Pergamum's... Looks like they're not doing too good. They got a few things. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So let's talk about both those for a minute. There's two items that Jesus specifically points out are problematic. Two things in particular. Now, some people say, that these are the same thing. We'll talk about that in a moment, but I think they're two different things, the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. So this is where we see the very beginning. Why did Christ give that introduction about the one, the words of him who has a sharp sword coming from his mouth? Here's why he's about to judge them. He's about to rebuke them for a particular sin. And pay attention, what is that sin? Well, there are some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who's Balaam? You guys know who Balaam is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's one of the guys for the Moabites. He's mentioned in Deuteronomy, yes. It's actually mentioned in, yeah, Balaam is actually mentioned in Numbers. Yes, the story of Balaam is, is told in Numbers, but he is mentioned in Deuteronomy as well. Uh, but yes, in Numbers, and we're going to go to Numbers in just a moment, so that's good. That's right, his story is there. That's right, so Balaam, he's from the Moabites. Balak is mentioned in this passage. He's the king of the Moabites, and he wants Balaam. He does not like the people of Israel, so he wants Balaam to go curse the people of Israel. And on his way there, you guys remember what happens? His donkey. His donkey does something. Now, it's not, it's not like a cartoon donkey here. It's a real donkey. And this donkey does what? His donkey stops him. Why? Come on, tell me what you know. What does his donkey do? You remember? No. <laughs> Just had to call you out. Sorry. What does his donkey do? And what's that? The donkey speaks and says, there's an angel up ahead, right? There's an angel of the flaming sword, and Balaam can't see this angel. And essentially, this donkey rebukes him. God allows the donkey to speak to him. Now, you guys are like, that's crazy. How could a donkey talk? 
Well, if, if God could create the world in seven days, if he can make his son rise from the dead, it's not going to be too hard for him to make a donkey speak. Okay? Uh, and so through this, what happens? Well, he, he goes, you know, this donkey rebukes him. He goes around the other way. He ends up going to try to curse the people of Israel. He's about to. And what happens? Balak thinks he's going to curse them. He blesses them. He blesses them and he blesses them. And, and Balak does not like that. Balak does not like the fact that Balaam does that. So you think, wow, Balaam's a great guy. He didn't curse them. He blessed them. Wow. Go Balaam, right? We think that, right? Well, if you actually go back to the book of Numbers, which if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn back to Numbers. Let's go to Numbers. Now, Numbers 22 through 24 tells the whole story of Balaam. We're not going to have time to read through all of it, but let's real quickly look at Numbers 25. Numbers 25. And now, the account of Israel's harlotry in Moab follows in Numbers 25, 1 to 2. Now, in turning there, this is what it says. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Look at that. So, they committed sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab. They were told not to intermarry with a foreign people who worship foreign gods. Why? Why? Because they would be led astray after those foreign gods. This was clearly commanded in the law. And what happened? By, by committing sexual morality with them, they were invited to the sacrifices of their gods. And what happened? The people of Israel, some of them ate the sacrifices offered to those gods, and they bowed down and worshiped to those gods. Verse 3, so Israel yoked himself to this false god, but all of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So this teaching of Balaam led them to do what? According to back to Revelation chapter 2, it, it, it said this, and keep, you can keep your hand in numbers if you do turn back to Revelation, but it says that they, there are some in your church in Pergamum who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. What is this stumbling block? This, by the way, this word for stumbling block is where we get our word for scandalous. The Greek word, you can hear it, scandalon. Scandalon, that's the Greek word. So a, something that's scandalous is a stumbling block. It's offensive. It, if you're throwing a stumbling block in front of someone, you're causing them to trip and fall. You're causing them to trip and fall. So because this is scandalous, we'd say, this is scandalous in this text. They were taught to put a scandalous stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Why? Well, there's two things. It would lead them into sin. It would lead them into destructive behavior. Now, in that, that's really dangerous, right? Well, let's continue. I need to go to my notes right here real quick. If we go over to our notes, in, uh, my notes, sorry. Um, if you look at Numbers 31, so like I said, stay in Numbers, 31, 15 to 16. And let's read that real quick. Numbers 31, 15 to 16. It says this, Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, these women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So what's really key here, look, Balaam, even though he didn't curse Israel, what did he do? He put a stumbling block by causing those women to go and commit sexual immorality with the people of Israel and leading them to worship false gods. He tricked them. He, you could say, tempted them. His teaching led to this. So Balaam and his teaching, was, it was incredibly immoral. It was bad. 
So we see that right in the beginning here in verse four, 14. But then in verse, verse 15, right? Verse 15. Actually, really quick, there's one more verse I wanted to, I wanted to share about Balaam that helps us from the New Testament. 2 Peter 2.15. 2 Peter 2.15 is this. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. That's what Israel did, right? They were supposed to go the right way, follow Christ, but they went the wrong way. They went astray. They have followed the way of Balaam. See, this is a theme throughout Scripture. The son of Baor, and this is what it was. What was it? Who loved gain from wrongdoing. He loved gain from wrongdoing. So what is he saying about the teachers in Revelation? There's some who teach the way of Baor. Well, they hold, or sorry, the teaching of Balaam. They love gain from wrongdoing. These people were trying to gain from the church of Pergamum through doing wrong, through eating food sacrificed to idols, to practice sexual immorality. There's a wicked thing happening in the church of Pergamum, and now the church of Pergamum is being rebuked for it. And then we have the church, or the problem, and we could say teaching of um, the Nicolaitans. So let's look at that part. So it says this in verse 15. So also, you, so also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Irenaeus, if you don't know who he is, he's a guy in the second century. He's someone who knew Polycarp. We talked about Polycarp last week. Uh, Irenaeus lays out in his work against heresies. He says this about Nicholas. He says, Nicholas, the deacon from the book of Acts, and his followers had fallen into the error of Serenthius of Ephesus, who had apparently adopted a Gnostic cosmology. Okay, so a Gnostic view of the world. And who are the Gnostics again? They are people who said, flesh is bad. Your physical body is really bad. And they also believed, based off the word, the Greek word for knowledge, gnosko, that they could give you a secret hidden knowledge. It'd be like, you know, there'd be like a creepy guy in a trench coat saying, hey, I got some secret knowledge right here, right? He's like, if you come and follow me, I'll give you this, right? That's what they're doing. They're tempting people, deceiving them. They were the back alley kind of creepy people who were just like, hey, come follow our worldview. And what they would do is they come in secretly to churches and kind of go one person at a time and seek to deceive them. And also what was dangerous about the Nicolaitans, and I didn't mention this last time, but in my studies I discovered this, they held to a view of Christology, the study of Christ, called adoptionism. Adoptionism. And what is that? Well, that is the claim that the divine Christ came upon Jesus. So Jesus wasn't divine until he was baptized. And, upon, and at that moment, um, he, he became divine. They say this happened at his baptism, and then prior to his crucifixion, left him. So this, this is heresy. This is a false teaching. That's to say that Jesus was not God, uh, but that rather God came upon him. That's false teaching. So these are the errors of the Nicolaitans. So now there's a view that say that Balaam, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of Nicolaitans is the same thing. Why? Because if you look at the word in Hebrew for Balaam, and you look at the word in Greek for Nicolaitans, it means the exact same thing. Exact same thing. It means conquer the people. Conquer the people. And it's easy to see it in Greek, right? Because you guys, who's wearing Nikes in here? Yeah, some of y'all wearing Nikes? You know the word Nike, Greek goddess of victory, of conquering? That's what Nike is, right? And so Nicolaitans, hear that? Nicolaitans, Nike, right? That is uh, essentially, and then, by the way, if I'm going to break this word down, Nike, so Nica, Nicolaitans, the Latians part, okay, that's the word for people, laos. So conqueror of peoples. That's what Nicolaitans means. And so, and so does Balaam. So it, they could be the same thing, maybe. But I would say only because, this is my argument to say they're not the same thing. I say they have the same goal, right? They have the same goal. Jesus says himself, I have a few things against you. And then he mentions those things. 
So it's, it's interesting, right? Satan's throne dwells in Pergamum. And who are the people in the church trying to destroy them? Those who are named conquer the people. Those who are named conquer the people are trying to take over the church. Very interesting. These false teachers, false teachings want to conquer the people. But we're going to see in the very end of this passage in verse 17 that God has a gift for those who conquer. But let's keep reading about this. So um, really what I, what I would say here is, is this. I think this is a very, very powerful um, imagery, a rhetorical imagery, we might say, for the church of Pergamum. They know what these words mean, and they know the goals of these false teachers. And, and students, look, real quick. If you think for one moment that there are, there are not forces in this world that are out to conquer you, you're already losing the battle. Very serious. Very serious. The, the things you watch, the music you listen to, the celebrities you follow, the social media you might use. I'm not saying social media is bad. Social media is not bad. It's just a tool, but it can be used for evil, just like anything in your life. A car is a good thing. You can use it for evil. And how we use the things in front of us, really, it shapes us. So how do you use your cell phone? How do you use your car? How do you use your clothes? How do you use everything you have? Because the world wants to shape how you do things. It wants to conquer you. It wants to pacify you. It wants to destroy you. Where Satan dwells. Guess what? If we go to Ephesians chapter 2. If everyone, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 3. It says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince or the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see here in this passage, this prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. He wants to conquer you. He wants to conquer you. He wants to destroy you. That's why even the book of Ephesians ends with putting on the full armor of God to stand firm and to be strong in the Lord. Are you strong in the Lord or are you just easily tempted? Are you easily carried about by every wind of teaching out in the world, teaching you to be someone you're not, teaching you to be just what your desires are? The worst advice in the world is follow your heart. The worst advice in the world to follow your heart is what's going to bring you to your death. You want to know why? Because your heart is wicked. Your heart is deceitful. It's destructive. And guess what? So is my heart. And Jesus can give you a new heart. And the Bible says that we wrestle with our old and new self. You know, becoming a Christian isn't easy. If you're not a Christian, maybe you, know, you, you, you fully know what it's like right now and you you, when you do wrong, you feel bad about it. It's almost as if it won't go away from your conscience. It's, it's like blood on your hands. No matter how much you clean your hands, you still feel bad about it. Maybe as an unbeliever, that's how you feel right now. And God wants to save you. God wants you to be free from your sin. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives. And everyone in here is a sinner. And everyone needs to be set free. 
But are you going to listen to Christ and his call to repentance? Are you going to let the world conquer you? Or are you going to trust Christ and not be conquered? So let's go on to verse 16 and talk about this repentance I'm mentioning here. Look at verse 16 in Revelation 2. He says, therefore, when you see the word therefore, you ask what? What is it? Therefore. Good. Good Bible readers here. Therefore, repent. So because there are some among you who hold to this teaching that is meant to conquer you, repent. And how would this church repent? Well, they would repent first by expelling those who teach false doctrine among them. They would expel them. But look at the rest of this verse. If not, if you don't repent about this false teaching, guess what? If not, I will come to you soon and war against them. Here's the word with the sword, with the sword of my mouth. Jesus will judge them. Jesus will destroy them with the sword of his mouth. Jesus is not playing games. Jesus is serious. And it is not a time to play games. So we see here this call to repentance. And it, is, is, it could be a reference to his second coming where he comes to rule and reign, but could also just be the fact that he's going to come with his word through uh, a pastor or a preacher who would come and proclaim the word to them. I think it could be either way, although I lean toward it being Jesus' second coming. This sword, Jesus' words, it's going to be wielded over to those who would seek to lead the church toward idolatry and seek to lead the church toward evil, toward bowing the knee to Satan's throne. So now let's look at verse 17. Verse 17, it says, He who has an ear, and this is our, 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 our third point here, um, the conqueror's promise. The conqueror's promise. And we see here in this passage, He who has an ear, you all got ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the hidden manna, give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, when we think about this passage, there's two things here. There's a promise and a demand. You know Jesus has demands of you? Jesus has demands of you. If you're a follower of Christ, he demands you follow. If you're an unbeliever, he demands that you repent. You know that? You might think, look, I'm young, I got life to live, I can just ignore Jesus for now, and maybe when I get older, I'll just follow him then. It doesn't work like that. You got breath in your lungs? You know he gave you that breath? You know he gave you that breath? And as Vody Bauckham says, if you borrow in that breath, you can't give it back. And if you can't give something back, that's, that's what? It's called stealing. So now you're a thief for breathing. <laughs> right? Listen, you owe God so much. And the truth is, you could never pay it back. You could never pay it back. That's what that parable of the unforgiving servant's about. That guy had like 2,000 years or something worth of debt that he could never pay. And he begs and he says, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. And the master in this parable forgives him. Forgives him of all that debt. Maybe you're thinking about going to college and college debt could be a thing. Well, you might be able to pay that off in your lifetime. But the sin debt that you have, you can never pay that off. But the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 that he cancels the record of debt against us. 
by nailing it to the cross. You know, when a thief was hung on a cross, they would have some sort of sign on the cross to say why they were being crucified. So when the thieves were crucified, they had a little money bag around their neck or what they stole around their neck or what, at least what it was worth. And so when people would look at this person being crucified, they would have that thing there to say this is their sin. This is why we hung them on the cross. You know what Jesus' sign was on the cross that Pilate wrote? In Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, the king of the Jews. His reason for being crucified was because to, to uh, Pilate, he claimed to be king of the Jews. And there could be no king but Caesar, as the Pharisees shouted. Jesus did nothing wrong. But that was his reason, according to the Romans, that he was on the cross. Our sin, all of our sin in Christ was nailed to the cross. And that sacrifice was once for all sin. And that sacrifice can be applied, that blood, his spilt blood for you can be applied to your account, can be credited to your account. Maybe you work a job and you have a bank account, and don't you just love payday? And it just fills your bank account, and you're like, yes, I can pay my bills, <laughs> right? Well, you know what? Apart from Christ, you're bankrupt, and you have a debt to pay on Judgment Day, and if Christ has not deposited his life into your account, you'll have nothing to pay up. But if he has, if you've trusted in him by faith, and you've said, God, I need you, I confess my sin to you, I repent and trust in you. And what does he do? You don't have any righteousness. He transfers his to you. He transfers his righteousness to your account. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't say, you're righteous because of what you did. Nope. He says, you're righteous because my son. You're righteous because you believed in the son. And if you believe in the son, as scripture says, you have life. Do you have that life today? Notice here in this text, he has said to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Remember manna in the Old Testament is that bread that came down from heaven. Literally in the Hebrew, the words are, what is it? They didn't know what it was. So it's literally like, what is it bread? You know, that's kind of the name of it. Manna. They didn't know what it was. It just, and, and the psalmist called it angel food. It came from heaven. And, and that was a sign of God's provision. So to the one who conquers, you'll get what God provides. This hidden manna. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a very symbolic thing. But notice also what is given. This is a white stone. This seems kind of odd. A white stone. What are you going to do with a white stone? Well, back in that day, it's another way of describing the same thing. Uh, one commentator says that those who triumphed in games were often given uh, white stones for entry into their celebratory banquets. Uh, such stones were also used in court cases to signify acquittal. So those who overcome will enjoy the messianic banquet, the banquet of Jesus, and stand clean before God forever. So in the ancient world, to know someone's name also, notice what it says in our text. It says you're going to get the hidden manna, you're going to be given the white stone, and with a new name written on that stone. Now, in the ancient world, to know someone's name meant power over that person. So they get, you got to think of it in their context. Significantly, no one knows the name of Jesus. Now, you might be like, wait a second, you just said his name. Well, if you go to Revelation 19, Revelation 19, 11 and 12, look at what that says. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So we see in that passage, Jesus has a name that yet no one knows. And in this passage, you can have a white stone to the one who conquers with a new name, a new name that God gives to you. So significant, it's very significant here. Uh, in, in the book of Isaiah, this is prophesied, Isaiah 62, verse 2. Look at this passage. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. Listen, right here. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. We see in this passage something very beautiful in God giving a new name and pointing forward to that marriage supper in the lamb, of the Lamb at the end of all things. So, those who conquer, you're going to be given a new identity. This is the culmination of your salvation. This white stone, this hidden manna, this new name, it all means one thing, eternal life. Will you conquer or will you be conquered? Will you conquer or will you be conquered? It is in reflection real briefly here in the end. You can't choose to compromise. There's no room for compromise for any of us. When you, if, if right now, if as I'm speaking to you, you know of known sin in your life that you have not confessed to God, you need to bring that to God. Especially if you're a follower of Christ, if you have known sin in your life, you need to confess that to God because you've broken fellowship and you need to restore that fellowship. But maybe you have known sin to God, but you've never gone to God at all and you never trusted in Christ. Well, you need to go to God today. And you know, you know how you can know whether you're right with God? Well, one, your conscience, to some degree, will tell you. But number two, where are your affections? Jesus himself said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? Is it in Christ or not? As I talked about, our, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And we often think, how could Israel do what they did? How could they go after the Moabite women? How could they sacrifice these false gods? Well, they did. They did even after they saw all that God did. It might be easy for us to criticize those in the past, but we don't often criticize ourselves. We don't often take the sword of the word and say, God, do your work on my heart. How do you approach the word? I say in conclusion, one thing must take place in our life, and this is it right here, the concluding statement for our audience, because this is all about conquering. Only the authority of Jesus must reign, or we might say conquer, in our lives. Who has ultimate authority in your life? Do you submit to God's authority or do you submit to your heart's authority, to your heart's desires? Who reigns supreme? Now, Christ reigns regardless if you submit to him or not. Your little rebellion that you currently have against God, if you're not actively submitting to God's will for your life, it will be a very temporary rebellion. The truth is, Christ rules and reigns right now and he'll squash your rebellion one day forever in the lake of fire if you do not trust him. God doesn't want you to spend eternity there. Lake of fire was not designed for you. It was only designed for Satan and his demons. But it's up, it's, it truthfully 
is a, is a moment of decision for you right now. If you'll, will you repent and trust in Christ, or will you continue to rebel? Now, one, a couple application questions I want to ask you, okay? Number one, how is your interaction with the world? I talked about this a little bit a moment ago. How is your interaction with the world, where Satan's throne is? He's the prince of the power of the air, is he not? How is your interaction with the world? Do you give in to it, or do you not? And also, can people, if they look at you based off your interaction in the world, can they tell who you belong to? Can they say, hey, this is so-and-so. They're a follower of Christ, or they're a Christian. Is the first thing someone brings up about you, man, they're a great athlete. Man, they're a good-looking person. Man, they're really smart. You hear what they got in the ACT? What's the first thing people say about you? What's the first thing people say about you? You're a great basketball player. They're going to a good college. They're really funny. They're really goofy. What's the first thing? Now, don't start pointing at everybody. Come on now. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? What is the first thing? Self-assess right now. Self-assess. Don't look across the room. What do people say about you? Do they say that person's a follower of Christ? That person's a Christian? That person follows Jesus no matter what? You can't get them to come to the parties with us. You can't get them to say a cuss word. You can't get them to do X, Y, or Z. You wonder why? Because they love Jesus. Hopefully, they say those things about you. But what do they say? Do pe- can people tell where you, who you belong to? So maybe this passage for you, maybe this passage for you today, it's a word of comfort. It's a word of commendation. Maybe you're frequently at these places like school or work or maybe in your home or doing sports uh, where God clearly isn't reigning in some of these places, but yet you hold fast, yet you are faithful to him. If that's you, then praise God. Keep holding fast. Keep on keeping on. Don't look back. But maybe for you, this passage today is a passage of judgment. It's a passage where you know in your heart of hearts that you need to repent. Maybe you've given in to false teaching and ideas from our culture and from the world, from the throne of Satan, that we might say are destructive. Maybe ideas like thinking sex outside of marriage is okay or that it's normal, or ideas that say just express yourself, follow your heart, do whatever your heart tells you to do. And if someone else, they're doing the same thing, praise the things that they're doing to follow their heart. Maybe those ideas are the ideas you've adopted. Maybe you said, no one's going to tell me what to do, and you've chosen to be your own authority and to be a rebel. Well, this passage is a warning to you. This passage is a call to repentance and one of judgment towards you. Maybe you don't like that. Well, I'm not here to tickle your ears. It's the truth. And I hope today that if you do not have a relationship with Christ, you realize that Christ does love you that he judged his son in your place. You might fear, God, man, God's got a judgment. Why is this God a God of judgment? Well, if you read the Bible, it's more about judgment than it is about love, but God's love still reigns supreme. You see God's judgment everywhere over the Bible, but why? Because he loves. God loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Where are you today? Have you trusted in God's love for you? Now, I want to close with this story. Now, I, I believe this is an embellished story, but I think it hits the point. Maybe you've heard me share it once before. I can't, I can't remember. 
by Alexander the Great. It's been said that he was in a battle, and he saw a man flee this battle. And he, when he goes after the guy, and he catches him back at the camp, he says, what's your name, and why did you flee the battle? He said, well, I was scared, sir. And he, and he said, what's your name? He says, my name's Alexander. And Alexander the Great looked at him and says, change your name or change your ways. Why would he say that? Now, remember I said this is probably an embellished story, but to the point, Alexander called himself Alexander the Great. He did not like that this weakling little Alexander fled the battle. And his point to him was, you're going to either represent my name well, Alexander, or you're going to change your ways and, and live up to that name. So to you, you might say, I'm a Christian. Okay, do your work show it? Does your life show it? Well, if it, it does show it, great. But if it doesn't, change your name or change your ways. Be honest. No one likes a hypocrite in the sense of, you know, if you will it willfully or being hypocritical, not acknowledging it. Everyone, no one's perfect, but you get my point. So are you following Christ to conquer or are you being conquered? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time together. And God, I ask that you would help these students to discern the nature of their heart. Because as so many of these passages opens up with, actually every single letter to these churches say, I know your works, or I know your trouble, I know what's going on. God fully knows the depths of each one of our hearts, and regardless of what the person might think next to, next to us here, God, I pray that each, each person will fear you first, and fear you alone, and choose to repent and follow you with all they have. Lord, that they would be conquerors in the end, that we would all leave this room and leave this life knowing that we're all conquerors in you and we haven't been conquered by the teaching of the Nicolaitans or the, or the teaching of the ways of Balaam, those who worship false gods and sexual morality. But Lord, we would live in your world as you designed it for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.